Would you open your Bibles to the book of Acts in chapter number 9 this morning? Acts in chapter number 9. <clears throat> So I'm so glad Brother Gaddis is preaching, uh, in the, not because I get to do this, but just because I'm glad he's taking interest in our, in our young people, um, those R's and those that ride the bus, be out in the gym this morning. They get to, uh, some of them never really get to see the pastor. And so this morning they get to see the pastor and that's awesome. So I'm excited that he's doing that. I pray that goes well. Acts chapter 9, I want to read the first eight verses, if you'll follow along. A familiar passage, if your Bible, like mine, has headings, mine says Saul's conversion. So this is familiar to us, but I want to point out some things about this this morning. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, that way he's talking about is Christianity, which he was vehemently opposed and thought he was doing God a favor by wiping it off the face of the earth. So if he finds any of this way, whether... Now notice what it says, whether they were men or women, didn't matter. He might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. So that's his mission. That's his desire. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined a light round about him, a light from heaven. He fell to earth and heard a voice saying, now do you have red letter Bible? Okay. So Jesus himself speaking, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth. When his eyes were opened, he saw no man. They led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. I want to preach this title to this passage, A Change, A Change of Heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you open our hearts and our minds to the truth of the scripture this morning. There may be some right here in this room who have never had a change of heart that only comes from knowing you. I pray that today would be the day they'd receive Christ. However you speak to our hearts, may we respond as you speak to us. We're thankful for our time together. Bless Brother Gaddis as he's preaching to those young people this morning, I pray that that is just a real good time of blessing and that you would use his message there to in those young people's lives and bless our time together here now in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. A change. A change of heart. 
A family from a remote area was making their first trip to the big city. They checked into this grand hotel. They just stood and were amazed by all the impressive sights. Leaving the reception desk, the father and the son came to the elevator. They'd never seen an elevator. They just kind of stared at it, unable to figure out what it was for. Soon an older lady made her way to the elevator. She made her way inside and the door closed. About a minute later, the door opened and out came a beautiful young woman. <laughs> Without turning his head, dad patted his son's arm and said, son, go get your mother. If you look up in Webster's 1828, which I recommend, if you, if you have a smartphone, you have access to Webster's 1828, a great dictionary. And if you, even for words in the Bible, if you're not sure, you can look them up and, and you'll find some great help in Webster's 1828. If you look up the word change in Webster's 1828, here's what you'll read. To cause, to turn, or pass, from one state to another, to alter or make different, to vary in external form or in essence as to change the color or shape of a thing, to change the countenance, to change the heart or life. Have you found change to be painful, difficult? If you're like me, you... You, at some point at an age, and I'm not sure what age it is, but I'm at it. You don't want it. You don't want change. And you resist it. You say no to it. And the older I get, this, maybe this is just me, I find even the smallest thing, I don't want to do it. Well, my kids will say, this is better. No, it isn't. <laughs> if it requires change. We resist change. Doctor and a patient. Have you had ever had a conversation with your doctor? Not good. You, the doctor said to you, his patient are in terrible shape. You got to do something about this. First, tell your wife to cook more nutritious meals. Stop working like a dog. Also inform your wife you're going to make a budget and she has to stick to it. And you have to keep the kids off your back so you can relax. And unless there's some changes like that in your life, you're going to be dead in a month. Well, the patient said, Doc, this would sound more official coming from you. Would you please call my wife and give her those instructions? Guy drives home and his wife rushes into his arms. I talked to your doctor. You've only got 30 days to live. <laughs> Change is hard. It's hard. And if you're like me and, and most of the world and you watch infomercials, you get this idea everyone has something about them they wish they could change. And it's 
could be physical and maybe you, you don't like, you know, the shape or size of your nose or you wish your stomach was flatter or your shoulders were broader or you had more hair on your head or you wish you were shorter or taller or thinner, fatter. And, you know, you watch television and all these infomercials. So, man, you can buy it, something for whatever it is you want to change. And it's going to help you. And in just five minutes a day, you're going to have abs of steel. And, and 30 days on this grapefruit diet, you're going to lose 30 pounds. And there's bionic wrinkle cream. And I mean, just all kinds of things that are going to help us change. We're all, it seems like, desperate to alter. As, as Webster put it, to alter or make different. If I could only change this part of me, this part of my body, I would be happy and, and, and my outlook would be changed and I would feel better. And I can see this. It is possible to make changes and you may know someone who has made a drastic change in maybe their physical appearance for the better. And they do seem to be happier and maybe they're more at peace with themselves and so it is possible, let's all admit, to make a change to yourself for the better. And sometimes it's people spend the same amount of energy and time and maybe even money to make an inward change. And they're always looking for something, some assistance to make some inward change that they feel they need to make. And you can go to the bookstore right now and they'll have a section called self-help. And it'll probably be the biggest one. And all kinds of writers are going to help you make some kind of inward change. It's going to be meaningful and helpful to your life and to people around you. Or, and there's TV talk shows and there's all kinds of experts and there's radio shows and therapists and hypnotists and doctors of all shapes and sizes that promise I will help you with your self-esteem or your re broken relationships or your past guilt or your addictions or your bad habits. And you and I know people and maybe perhaps you have really tried to make those kind of changes, those inward kind. And maybe you've been successful and maybe you feel better and maybe you do have a better outlook on life and those around you are happier and your attitudes change and that's all good. I'm not saying that's bad. That's great. But here's the question. Can a person alter or make different their heart? Can someone, can we do something that will bring about permanent, eternal change to our own heart? Now, Saul is a name that's familiar to you. And then if you're not familiar, just a short background at this point in his life, he's young rabbi. We're introduced to him in chapter seven of this book. We find that he's persecuting the church by the church. I mean, believers of Christ, followers of Jesus, Christians, he's persecuting them. He's wreaking havoc on the church of Jerusalem. 
The picture given is that is as a wild beast would bring destruction. That's what Saul has been busy to do. He got his first taste of blood with Stephen. And you remember Stephen was martyred. And the Bible gives us this just this brief introduction to Saul where it says those who were about to stone Stephen, it says they laid their coats at the feet of this Saul. That's when we're introduced to Saul. And now he's he's grown in power and in desire to see to see Christians removed from this earth. And notice how it puts it in verse number one. He is very breath. It's as if every thought, every desire of his heart has to do with killing, hunting down, imprisoning followers of Christ. He's persecuted the church now in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and northern Israel. And now it says in verse number one, he goes to the high priest for permission to cross the border into Syria, into Damascus. I'm going to search for disciples of Jesus in case any of them have fled there. It's kind of like he's a bounty hunter. He's going wherever he can possibly go where he thinks believers may have congregated and he's going to bring them back bound in prison to Jerusalem. Now this city, Damascus, he's heading 140 miles away from Jerusalem. So that's a good journey. Take you at least a week or more to walk there. Evidently, he's gotten word that there's a population of Jews who are in Jerusalem or who are in uh, Damascus and Reports that there must be also some believers there, believers of Christ. I'm going to bring them back. They're going to stand trial such as it is, the same way Stephen stood trial. And they're going to be stoned to death as blasphemers. We're going to discourage any Jews from leaving Judaism now after this thing called Christianity. Notice he says men or women, it doesn't matter. No pity, no mercy, just wanting to stamp out Christianity. We're talking now about a hardened killer, That's right. a murderer. Without pity, without mercy, persecutor of the church. But something happened. Something altered Something changed in his heart. I'm talking about a permanent, eternal change took place. And he was never the same. We've never been the same because of it. Now listen, I want to back up just a little bit and talk about Saul before, before he, we read the red letters. What kind of person was he? What kind of heart did he have then? What kind of heart did he have in the first couple verses of this chapter? Number one, and this is all of us know this because we've read other things that he's written. Saul had a religious heart. Very, listen, very religious, sincere, committed 
as he knew it, listen, he was as committed to God as you can possibly imagine. In his heart, he thought for sure, I am doing God's work. Zealous is a word we use. Zealous means he's on fire. He's going after what he believes is right with his whole heart. And I'm willing, listen, I'm willing to, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He was a Jew of the highest order. He was as religious a religious man as there ever walked this planet. He was a, had a religious heart. And he was even a student of his own religion. He knew Judaism forwards and backwards. And to be honest, Judaism obviously has some truth. I have a feeling sometimes when I read about Saul and I see other people in other religious systems, I, all, I have to wonder, does their religious system, as false as it is, mean more to them than my Christianity means to me? Have you not seen those who you know do not know Jesus being about the business of their religion and be almost ashamed. What they're willing to do for a false, for false religious system and many times it overshadows what I'm willing to do for Christ. Saul's religion, Judaism, and all religions, listen, prove false or true on this one issue. One issue will divide all religions, whether they be true or false. And here's the issue, this one, this one statement, what does my religion teach about Christ? Saul had religion, but his heart was unchanged. His heart was just as lost as the day he was born, his religion, as committed to it as he was, as zealous as he was, as good at it as he was, left him unchanged. So I Googled. You Google? I'm a good Googler. How many churches are in Oklahoma City? I said to Google. He responded, 7,000 in Oklahoma City alone, 7,000. Well, we could imagine a good portion of those would teach and preach about Christ and the truth of the gospel, I'm going to say. But there are many, no doubt, who are full of adherents, who are committed and who are serious and who are zealous and who have some measure of truth. But the question is not, the question is not, what is your religion? And are you committed to it? And are you serious about it? And are, uh, do you follow it? And do you know it? The question is not that. The question, remember, is what does it teach about Jesus? So some of those that you'll find in Oklahoma City, just a handful are these. You'll find in Oklahoma City, the Christian science people. They believe this. The virgin mother conceived this idea of God and gave to her ideal the name of Jesus. Jesus was the offspring of Mary's self-conscious communion with God. False. 
Right here in Oklahoma City, we have a lot of Jehovah Witness churches. Here's what they will teach about Jesus. Jesus Christ is not one God with the Father. Jesus is the first creation by God. Michael the archangel is no other than the only begotten Son of God. Now, Jesus Christ. That's false. Right here in Oklahoma City, you'll have those who call themselves the Latter-day Saints. I call them Mormons. Here's what they teach about Jesus. Among the spirit children of Elohim, the firstborn was and is Jehovah or Jesus Christ. By obedience and devotion, he attained to the pinnacle of intelligence, which ranked him as a god. That's false. It's a false religious system. Yet I see him out about their business pretty diligently. How about our Roman Catholic friends? During, during an audience with Pope John Paul II, here's what he referred to the role of Mary and the crucifixion of Jesus. He said this, Mary cooperated during the event itself and in the role of mother. Thus her cooperation embraces the whole of Christ's saving work. Her cooperation with her son continues for all time in the universal motherhood which she enjoys in the order of grace. Trusting in this maternal cooperation, let us turn to Mary, imploring her help in all our needs. Faults. Those are just a handful right here in Oklahoma City. Probably you know where some of these are on your street, in your neighborhood who are teaching a religious system that is full of lies, falsehoods. But there's not only that, there's, think of this, because your membership is in a church that has all its ducks in a row and knows who Jesus is and preaches true doctrine about the gospel and about who he is, you know, that's no guarantee that you've had a heart change because it's not about religion. It's about a relationship. And I think as a result, what we have in Oklahoma City and around the world, even right now, are churches who are full of well-meaning religious people whose hearts are not changed. And they're committed to their religion and to the rules of their religion, but they're lost. And they're zealous, perhaps. And they're about the business of their religion, but they're lost. And they're even well-meaning and sincere about what their religion teaches and about the business of their being religious inside this system. But they're still lost. They could have a change of attitude, a change of behavior. Changes to your outlook on life. Changes that make everyone happy around you, but yet no real change in your heart. Saul was lost, unchanged heart. Number two, Saul, listen, had this. He had a prideful heart. If you read about Saul and his background, he, he reports about the pride he had in his upbringing and who he was as a Jew. Listen to what he said about himself in Philippians after his conversion. He says this, I, though I might have 
also confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Can you picture all that going through his heart and mind as he goes about finding believers in Christ and dragging them to prisons and to their deaths? I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews and I'm this and I'm that and I have this and I have that. In my religious system, I'm at the top rung full of pride. Now, I don't know about anything but Baptists. So I can only look at myself. But I have a feeling sometimes us Baptists, we get a little bit of pride about who we are. Did I say that out loud? I mean, because come on, I got a suit on. I'm wearing a bow tie. Everybody knows that means you're right. I'm just afraid sometimes if we're not careful, we can have pride in doing the right things. Check, 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 check. I'm dressing right, check. I'm not doing that, check. I'm not going there. I'm not listening. I'm, and we got this, all this checklist of things that somehow we think makes us good. We think makes God happy. We think makes our religion better than other people's. And we go to the right places and we act right and we do right and we talk right. And I'm afraid sometimes that just if we're not careful, drifts over just a little bit into pride. Because being a good Baptist won't change your heart. And having pride in all the rules that you keep won't change your heart. And here's Saul holding on to all the outward symbols of this dead religious system. And his pride kept him bound kept him bound to doing outwardly all the actions and all the things that kept him religious and zealous and committed to God, all these things that he did, and inside still no heart change, a prideful heart. He also had a hateful heart, didn't he? It's strange, all that religion he had, all that devotion to God he had, and he was full of hate. He hated Christ. He hated those who followed his way. All this talk I see today is funny. There's so much talk about love and acceptance today, which only works if you agree with those. For some reason, if you're not agreeing with those who teach love and acceptance... It doesn't apply to you. And the Pharisees were no, n notorious for loving those who were like them. They were so notorious for loving those that liked them that Jesus told a parable just to poke it at them. He said, you ever heard of the parable about the man that went down and the thieves came and stripped him? They took him and left him wounded and who happened to come by some good Jews and they left him and then a Samaritan came 
Now that doesn't have the impact on us than it had on them. But what Jesus was saying to them was, you have a hateful, unchanged, prideful heart. And your religion hasn't done anything for you. And Saul's unchanged heart led him to hate those that weren't like him. Can I add here, I hope that in an atmosphere, in our culture of hate, that we who are believers, we still demonstrate and show love to the unlovely. And even those who spew hatred, that they wouldn't get it in return from us. They would only see love. And there's even, can I say this? I don't know how, I'll just say it. There's a little bit of brand of Christianity right now that wants to spew hate. I'm telling you, it's not of God. It is not. And I don't care if you got all your ducks in a row. Theologically, that's wrong. That's wicked. Don't allow that. I'm so right that I can hate who I want. I'm telling you, that's not of God. Saul had this hateful, prideful heart, unchanged by all this religion that he had had, unchanged by being the best Jew that ever walked the face of the earth. Something's about to happen. The Bible says first thing that happened, there's a light that comes. This light, it shines, it's so intense, it sends him to his knees. He falls to the earth, it says. Wow. Now, God has showed himself many times in different ways in the Bible. Appeared to Moses in a burning bush. Solomon had a dream. God spoke to him. The Jews, as they were in the wilderness, he appeared a pillar of fire and a cloud. Remember, he showed himself to Elijah, the Bible says, in a still small voice. Well, God's never showed himself to me. If I could only see God, I'd believe. He did show himself. And he was a little baby in a Mary's arms. God showed himself. And then he hears a voice. And notice if you got the red letters in verse 4. By name, Jesus calls him out. Saul, why are you persecuting me? That same, think of this, the very same voice that spoke the world into existence. The very same voice that called Adam in the garden. The very same voice that spoke judgment to Satan and the serpent and all of creation. The very same voice that spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai and gave him the law. That same voice that stood outside of a grave and shouted to his friend Lazarus. Same voice that called, Bible says, called the soldiers, caused the soldiers to fall backwards in the Garden of Gethsemane. Same voice on the cross who said, It is finished. Now he's calling out Saul. 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 Why are you persecuting me? Think of what 
was in just that sentence. Just think of just what that sentence was saying. Saul, you're persecuting God. Saul, you're an enemy of God. Saul, all this time you've been working against God. Well, wait a minute, there's been some, I don't know what he was saying in his heart. Maybe he's thinking there's some mistake. I'm on God's side. God, I'm trying to uphold truth. God, I'm trying to defend you against those who are preaching heresy. Certainly, God, not everything that I've believed and everything that I've lived for up to this moment could possibly be wrong. But it was true. Saul, look at the next red letters. I'm Jesus. Saul, that one that you've hated, it's me. Saul, that one that you've been trying to persecute, it's me. The one that you've been dragging men, women, children to their deaths, that's me. The one that you don't believe in, the one that you fight against, Saul, that's me. I am Jesus. Was Saul sincere? He sure was. Was he as zealous as a person could possibly be? You bet. Did he think he was doing the right thing? He did. But think of this. You could be doing all that. You think you could be doing the right thing, going down the right path, doing the marking off all the boxes, zealous and after it like no one else and still be wrong. Unchanged. Lost. Well, how do we know Saul had a change? How do we know that Saul had a change of heart? Well, it's pretty obvious when you read what, happened, what he says in verse 6. Lord. Well, that's the first note that there's a change. <laughs> he called Jesus Lord. Lord, what do you want me to do? Listen to what Barnes in his work says about this little phrase. It says this, Paul did not debate the matter. He did not inquire what the scribes and Pharisees would say. He did not consult his own reputation. He did not ask what the world would think. With characteristic promptness, with a readiness which showed what he would yet be, he gave himself up at once and entirely to the Lord Jesus, evidently with a purpose to do his will. Amen. Here he was on a journey to apprehend Christians and he got apprehended by God. Amen. And his heart had been changed. But note this, don't, don't lose this. His heart wasn't changed by any of his own righteous deeds. In fact, the Bible says all our righteousnesses, all the good things that we could possibly do are nothing better than filthy, nasty rags. Saul, all that stuff you've been doing, it hadn't amounted to anything. Not because of your own righteousness, not because of your own religious devotion, not because he worked harder than anybody else. He simply was changed because Jesus drew him and he said, yes, Lord. Can I tell you this? God searches for the sinner. God got Saul's attention, but notice how he words it in verse 5, how, what Jesus says. 
It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now that's not a phrase we use, but it would be some kind of like a cliche they might use in those days. And it just simply means this, as a farmer was plowing with his oxen, he would use an ox goad, which is just a sharp stick, and he'd poke at the heels and at the, the business end of those oxen, you, you know what I'm saying? To get them going, get them moving. And then, you know, as you can imagine, they would try to kick back and kick against those pricks, but wouldn't do any good. And as the farmer would poke them, they may kick their legs back to no avail. Didn't mean, didn't amount to anything. So to kick against the pricks just kind of can become a little cliche. Jesus said, I've been pricking you. You've been kicking it, but you can't kick against the pricks. So before he reaches him here in, on the road to Damascus, and before this conversation, evidently God has already been goading him. God has already been poking him every now and then, getting his attention. Well, how would he have done that? Well, remember, Saul knew the Bible. He knew the Old Testament. I mean, he was a student of the scripture. And don't you know, every now and then, he would open to those passages that pointed at that suffering Messiah. And in his mind and heart, he would wonder, I wonder if that really was Jesus. And just in his word, he began to goad him. And then Saul stood there as they began to throw rocks at Stephen and, and beat the life out of his body. And they laid their coats as Saul was, Saul was uh, he was like the coat watcher watching over the proceedings and putting his stamp of approval on what's going on. And as he watched Stephen breathe his last, was not that a witness to him? The death of a believer was unlike any he'd ever seen. And it was like a goad. It was like a prick. Perhaps the face of every man and woman and child that he had persecuted, he saw was burned in his memory. They were believers. They didn't die like others. They didn't have the same attitude and the, the same uh, makeup as others. And in chapter 9, it's like one more time, God goes out of his way to prick the heart of a sinner who needs a heart change. Because God pricks all our hearts. In other words, no one could ever say, listen, this is what I mean. No one can ever say, God has not pricked my heart. No one can ever say that. No one can ever live their life and die and say, I had no knowledge of God because the truth is God has put his imprint on the creation itself. Romans 1, for the invisible things of him, the things we can't see from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Those who are unbelieving right now are unbelieving because they don't want to believe. Because God has revealed himself even in his creation. 
We got off a plane in Portland a couple of weeks ago. And had it not been 116, <laughs> I would have looked at the creation and said, wow. But I couldn't. It was way too hot. <laughs> and how can, listen, God is saying through creation, here I am. Look up in the sky. You can't see the end of the galaxies. Here I am. And look around at the mountains and the beauty around, and you'll see me saying, here I am. And go to the nursery and look at them little babies. And you hear him saying, here I am. The invisible things are understood by the things that are made. And God is ever drawing men, calling men, pointing men to the truth. And if you have never had the experience Paul had, or that Saul, we call him Paul now, you may not have had that kind of experience, but you've had your own Damascus. You've had it. This morning in Sunday school, I made reference to the fact I got saved in 1979. I was just a fetus. I was just a, I was 17. And I mentioned I was sitting on the back row of the balcony. No offense if you're on the back row, but for me in those days to be on the back row of the balcony was a choice to get as far away as I possibly could to whatever was going on right here. And I still remember God spoke to my heart. You better get saved tonight. And against what I would normally do or be, I walked the aisle and received Christ. That was Damascus Road for me. And yours may not be as dramatic as Paul's, but I hope you've had that experience. I hope there was a time where you've received Christ. For the first time now, Paul, Saul, he sees himself for what he really was. All my religion was not the way of life and truth. All my religion has left my heart unchanged. All my religion has just led me to more pride and being bound to it. All my religion has left me a sinner apart from God. And all my religion has left my heart unchanged. And now God, Jesus, forgives him. If you read about Saul before his conversion, and maybe you would ask a question that would kind of be an obvious question. Why didn't God just flick Saul off the earth way before this? Why didn't God just take care of business and end Saul's life? He's persecuting the church. Bad things are happening because of him. Surely he could have intervened somewhere and just ended Saul. And that's true for sure. But God seeks to forgive the sinner. And God seeks to bestow his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness on any who will receive it. No matter if they're the chief of sinners or not. Because it was Paul who wrote this. I am the chief of sinners. That was his words. Aren't you glad that Jesus isn't like you and me? 
because there's not one person in this room who would have given two cents for Saul. And we probably wouldn't have spent five minutes to try to convince him that he was wrong or to point him to Jesus. But isn't it like Christ to reach down to the vilest of all sinners in his own testimony, the chief of sinners, and to cleanse him from all unrighteousness? So where would we be without the forgiveness of God? Someone once asked President Lincoln how he was going to retreat, how he was going to treat the rebellious Southerners when they had finally been defeated and returned into the Union. And the questioner expected that Lincoln would take a dire vengeance, but Abraham Lincoln said this, I will treat them as if they had never been away. Isn't that Jesus? D.L. Moody wrote this. The thief had nails through both hands so that he could not work. And a nail through each foot so he could not run errands for the Lord. He could not lift a hand or a foot toward his salvation. And yet Christ offered him the gift of God and he took it. Christ threw him a passport and took him into paradise. That's Jesus. Not religion. That's Jesus. And can I tell you how God just doesn't save and seek sinners? Man, he uses sinners. Where would we be without what Paul meant to Christianity? He preached the gospel. He took the gospel across the Roman Empire. That very same faith he wanted to stamp out, now he served with the same passion and vigor and vigilance that he did before. He now does. And we all consider him probably the greatest missionary, if not the greatest Christian to ever walk the face of the earth. Most of the New Testament that we get to read and enjoy and speaks to our hearts came from his pen isn't it amazing that God uses sinners to do his work? Sinners with changed hearts. A change that religion didn't bring or good works didn't bring or money didn't bring. It's only Jesus who can take a sinful black heart and change it to do something amazing for him. Man, it's illustrated right there. I want to tell you this. Until you meet Jesus... Your heart will never be changed. Now, you may change a lot of things about yourself. You may change outside. You may do some, change some things that are meaningful and helpful and, and give you a better outlook and attitude. And I appreciate that. But you can't make an eternal, permanent change to your heart without Jesus. And you may have tried things. You may have tried self-help books and Religious rituals and resolutions and programs and support groups and all kinds of things that we have that we could possibly take advantage of to change. But until you meet Jesus, there's no change. And like Saul, God has been convicting, drawing, poking at you. And he wants to forgive you and he wants to give you a new heart. Not on your terms, on his. Just see yourself for who you really are.
I'm a sinner. I'm apart from God. And I may change a lot of things. I may change the way I look. I may change my personality. I may change my attitude, my outlook, my intellect. But I can't change my heart. Without saying yes. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. He's drawing all of you. If you don't know him today, if you're in this room and somehow you got here, doesn't matter. In fact, part of that is God's work. However, you're here this morning. God's drawing you to himself. And if you don't have a changed heart, there's never been a time you receive Christ. You can this morning leave. Think of this. You can leave with a whole new heart. You can leave this place. With a peace that only he gives by knowing your sins forgiven. A home that waits you in heaven and a new heart. If you don't know Christ this morning. We're going to have a time of invitation. And we're going to invite you to come. And we'll take a Bible and show you how you can leave with a changed heart. Would you bow your heads? So thankful the way you've listened. Maybe God's spoken to you this morning. Before I have a word of prayer and we have an invitation, I would just ask this, would ask this. Is there any who would say, Brother Ted, would you pray for me? I don't, I don't think I'm saved or I'm confused about it or I know my heart's not been changed. And you could be a member of a church somewhere. You could be a member of this church. You could be involved in some religious system or no religious system. You could be serious and committed or not. It doesn't matter. We're talking about a relationship that changes your heart. Is there one to say, Brother Ted, would you pray for me? I'm not sure I'm saved, but I'm concerned about it. I'm concerned enough to just raise my hand and let you pray for me this morning. Is there one on my right, on your left, on the piano side, who raise your hand, Brother Ted, pray for me. I'm not sure of my salvation, but I'm concerned. I'm concerned about it. On my left, on the organ side. Pray for me, Brother Ted. I'm not sure. Yes, I see. Thank you. Any, any others? Pray for me, Brother Ted. I'm not sure of my salvation, but I'm concerned about it. Yes, I see your hand. Thank you. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for your word. We've had some raise their hands, concerned about their eternal soul, and we're concerned with them. We pray for them. I pray that you'd continue to speak to their hearts. Would you give them the courage to come forward here in just a minute? Let us show them how to be saved. I'm thankful for the story of a man who seemed to be so religious, have it all together, and yet lost the wicked, prideful, hateful heart. And just what God can do is a testimony of what God can do. And right in this room are many, many others who are testimonies of what God can do to a wicked and prideful and hateful heart. So thankful, so thankful that Jesus continues to draw men and women to himself. So if those who raised their hands, Lord, and maybe others who did not, I pray during our time of invitation, they would come, let us show them how to be saved. In Jesus' name, would you stand with me?